Welcome to Book Shambles. You're listening to an abridged version of this episode. You can listen to the full uncut edition of this episode if you become a Patreon supporter of the show. And that's for as little as $1 a month via Patreon. And uh, you can support us. So just go to patreon.com forward slash. I still say forward slash. I'm I'm nearly 51. Thank you. Uh, Forward slash Book Shambles for more info and how to pledge. Hello and welcome to Book Shambles producer Trent here. The guest on this week's show uh, was last on the show a couple of years ago, the former Bishop of Edinburgh and the fabulous author Richard Holloway. He joined us virtually to talk to Robin and Josie about his new book, Stories We Tell Ourselves, which is out this week from Canongate. So make sure you get yourself a copy of that, uh, preferably from an independent bookstore or a site like Hive where you can uh, donate to or part of the cover price to an independent bookshop and still get it delivered to you. So we hope you enjoy this episode. Remember, you can support the show by going to patreon.com slash bookshambles. Uh, your pledges on there is what helps us keep making the show, especially at a time where we can't get out and do any shows, do book shambles or any of our other shows live. And as well as uh, the warm feeling you'll get from supporting the show, you'll also get lots of extra goodies by subscribing on Patreon. Obviously, you get extended episodes of book shambles, plus you get lots of extra stuff, extra live shows as well, live streams, that is, uh, we've recently done uh, a book club with Robin and Natalie K. Thatcher showing off some of their rare books. We did a live stream the other night with Robin, Josie, myself and Joanna Neary talking about and showing off some of our favourite cover art. Uh, there's the show and tell show. That's part of Patreon as well. Our guest on that last week was Nish Kumar. So patreon.com slash bookshambles is where you can go to pledge and get all that extra stuff. And if you're not in a position to be able to do that, that is perfectly fine as well. Enjoy the show. Do go to like iTunes or Apple Podcasts or whatever it's called now and like and uh, rate the show five stars. That helps us out a lot as well. Anyway, on to the episode. Hope you enjoy this conversation between Robin and Josie and Richard Holloway. Hello, welcome to Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. And today we're having a guest on who, I think the last time, it must have been about two years ago, the last time mm. we had them on. One of my favourite authors, someone who, uh, I think the first book of his I read was uh, Godless Morality. And uh, Between the Monster and the Saint is, I think, a brilliant, one of my, my favourite books and a book that I return to, which is now actually basically a palimpsest because it's just covered in all the different, each time I return to it, there's new marginalia. So I'm not even sure how many of his words are left on the page. It is Richard Holloway. Hello, Richard. Hello. Lovely to see you again. It was now I had an inkling that after we talked about your last book, Waiting for the Last Bus, you were not thinking about writing a new book. I'm sure when we had our conversation, you said, I I think this might be my last book. I think I might be done now. You're right. But I've I've discovered that uh, writers are never done. I've actually started started on a new one. Um, It's it's a weird compulsion, which only death can cure. (laughs) Well, you're um, and did you know what? There's still the jury's out on whether that will be the cure. We don't know. We might all go up that enormous escalator like in Matter of Life and Death, receive our wings and go directly to the Coke machine. Um, (laughs) Or, an, or, or a writer's workshop in the sky. Yeah. The, uh, um, but I, how much, because you always, in terms of 
the other voices you bring in and there it's i mean I, i've always wondered what your your library must must look like because just you know you'll be halfway and then suddenly you'll you'll, you'll pluck out a bit of wh Auden or or a moment of hume uh and uh, i think the last time we were talking we we ended up talking about michael pollan's book about uh kind of hallucinogenics and and yeah. and william james so is that part of the writing process do you find yourself thinking no more books for me and then you read a poem and you think oh I've just seen something between the lines there. This book had a particular um, form to it. Um, I, I decided to um, think my way through all the books I'd read in the last 50 or 60 years. Not all of them, but I did a big exercise. Um, and I started taking notes. Um, and out of it came a kind of sequence uh, that turned into that book. Um, I knew I needed to come to terms with the fact that I continue somehow want to be a member of the Christian church, but I'm still unsure about God. And I'm not sure sureness about God is a good thing to have because it can sometimes lead to terrible cruelties. But I still want to learn something from the radical revolutionary compassion and forgiveness of Jesus. So how can I hold all that together? Was I being a hypocrite? Um, was I just not able to think through things. So I decided to go on a journey through a lot of the stuff that I'd been writing and wrestling with over the last 50 years. And I ended up in this quite comfortable position, although I'm never entirely comfortable in any position, of trying to follow the radical message of Jesus, whether or not God exists. Mm. And it seems to me that makes me somehow still a member of the Christian community, however eccentric. And that's kind of what happens in, in, in the book. Well, you describe, is it right, a practicing non-believing Christian? That's kind of, um, I guess, where I've got to. And I would immediately, if someone accused me of that in an accusatory way rather than in an explanatory way, I would want them to define what they mean specifically by Christian. And of course, Christianity is notoriously divisive. <clears throat> it will tell you my way of being a Christian is the only pure and right one and yours is heretical. I mean, there are at the last counting I did, there are 28,000 different ways of being a Christian on the planet. Wow. Um, from being someone who's, who's an agnostic, someone who calls themselves a Christian atheist, an absolute fundamentalist who believe only they have the truth. And this is because we're telling each other stories and instead of listening to the other person's story and asking how it affects how they live, we, we dig in and say only my story is the correct one, uh, whether it's a political story. Look how divided the world is at the moment. I mean, look at what's happening in the US because you've got these two rival stories killing each other kicking the hell out of each other. So the book turned into a kind of um, a plea for tolerance, a plea for listening to the stories we live by, but also with a question mark, does my story make me cruel or kind? And if it makes me cruel, I think you need radically to revisit it. If it makes you kind, I don't mind if you believe in pink flying elephants in the sky. If that's what it takes to make you kind, you have my blessing. Go in peace. That's uh, to bring back to one of our favourite writers. It's a very uh, Vonnegut uh, sentiment as well, isn't it? He, he always talks about if you can find 
a convincing lie that makes you a better person, then it's a good thing. It's a moral good. That immediately hits my conscience because I've never read him. I've I've heard so much about him. I know that he's one of those great figures out there that almost become a cult, but I haven't read him. So uh, (laughs) get back to Vonnegut. I'll take a note. Oh, he's ever so short. I think you'd find yourself enjoying it very much. So recommend, what should I start? Well, I was trying to think about where that where that particular sort of um, where that particular sentiment is most explicitly described. Well, well, I mean, he has, you know, he has that simple thing. God damn it. You've got to be kind is in uh, God bless you, Mr. Mr. See, I would always my favorite is always slapstick or lonesome no more. I think it's really fun and I think it's very interesting. And he talks a lot about his uh, his politics, which is sort of akin to. A, a a non a godless religion for him, I think. Mm-hmm. And, um, also, I really I like Man Without a Country as well. I think that's about how one ought to behave, even in the face of what feels pessimistic. But I mean, I, I think you you'd find them fun. That's, that's I, I I do think Slaughterhouse Five is a, is a, even though it seems the most obvious one. I reread it recently to write something about it. And it's one of those books that every time you return to it, you realise how much you've changed since the last time because it becomes a book about something different. And so much of Slaughterhouse-Five at a certain age suddenly becomes about children who were sent to war and look back and pretend that they were men when they were there. And I think there's a lot of of beauty and and sadness and tragedy in that book. It's, it, yeah, it's very uh, I'll go. I'll go get them. <laughs> the, uh, and yeah, we will we will refund should you not uh, find satisfaction from it. Um, I, I, one of the things that I love is we were talking about this recently. That that as you were talking about before that that way of being able to hold two opinions to be again another favourite of, of of yours and mine, Josie Walt Whitman to be a multitude. Of course, you know that that you 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 were talking about that that wonderful story where in Auschwitz the 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 story of the placing God on trial. And God is found guilty. And then they say, once they found him guilty, they go, anyway, now it's time to pray. Now, that to me is such an interesting, and that seems to be certainly what some of this this book, that idea of saying you do not have to be a singular thing. And that doesn't immediately make you a hypocrite. You're absolutely right. And I think you compare that to Christianity's desperation to get God off the hook. I love the fact that, that the rabbis in Auschwitz still... Um, believe in God, they're committed to God, but they think there's something wrong with the universe. They find him guilty of creating a flawed and deadly universe that's about to gas them, but they still can't give up their their hold on God. I love the paradox of that. Jews are better at that than Christians. Christians, especially Christian theologians, have to have an explanation for everything. They have to have it perfectly worked out. Um, it's what Rebecca Solnit calls mansplaining, uh, the way a lot of women experience men telling them things they actually know better uh, than the arrogant man who's trying to explain things to them. And one of the points I make in the book is try to live with uncertainties. It's, it's a bit like Keats' negative capability, that we have to be able to live with the fact that we can't know everything for sure. And it's dangerous to think that you have known everything for sure, because it then gives you permission to inflict your certainties on others. Now, you put your finger 
uh, Robin, exactly on um, one of the main one of the main points in the book that it, it, in Scotland we've got a famous phrase that's associated with Hugh McDermott, the the the, the poet. He talked about the Scottish anti-Zizigy, which is the existence of opposing or competing polarities in the same entity, um, which is why you can be both theist and atheist. Um, you can be in some ways someone who sees value in a conservative way of life, but also in a radical way of life. Everything needs to be balanced. It's the yin and the yang. Um, and there's something in us that just can't live with that kind of athletic need for, 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 for not absolutely knowing which way to go, but seeing something in a, in a multi, multitude of ways. You're, you're Whitman again. I contain multitudes. Is that when did you find being so you know who spent the majority of their their career in the church? Wh what was the and I know some of it was during the kind of the sex wars of the nineties and some of those that point where you went I what I am now cannot be contained within an organised religion within the organisation of religion. The big I mean let me back up for me. Um, Faith and doubt were always co-active, and I, I, I usually say to people that the opposite of, of faith is not doubt, it's certainty. Um, if, if you have certainty, you don't need to believe, you know, you can do the two times table on your, on your, on, on your fingers. Um, so my faith was always co-active with doubt and uncertainty. I wasn't sure, but I felt this was something that had big, radical, important values I wanted to commit my life to, especially when I was working in tough areas. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the thing that actually turned me away from the institutional version of that I was, in fact, a member of and a leader of was when I saw its cruelty against gay people. Um, particularly in 1998, there's a 10-year conference of Anglican bishops called the Lambeth Conference that meets every 10 years. And in 1998, um, there was a big debate about gay sexuality. Some of us wanted a shift in that. We didn't expect it to happen overnight. We thought we would do what usually happens, take it easy, appoint a commission, gradually think our way to a different position. Um, but in fact, the debate on it turned into what another bishop described as a Nuremberg rally. Uh, it, was, it became a festival of hate against gay people, especially among African bishops. Um, and I came away from the Lambeth Conference no longer wanting to be associated with that level of cruelty. Um, and that was the beginning of my move into this strange post-Christian limbo. And since then, in the last 20 years, I limped my way back into a different kind of more precarious um, but more graceful association with it. Do you think you can have an organisation that large? Will it ever? I mean, I'm thinking at the same time in another way, I'm thinking about atheism here, which was I was meant to do the World Atheist Conference a few years ago. And when I was asked, I, I already thought, I don't think it's going to happen because I think 10 years ago, people thought we're all atheists and we've all got a lot in common. And in that period of 10 years and that period of social media and all manner of other things, people had found out that not believing in God didn't necessarily mean that then you had a whole series of shared aims, beliefs, compassion, etc. And I think it, it got to the size it could and then it broke because it, people found. And in the same way that with something like a, a church organization, that once you get to a certain size for someone who does wish to remain curious and free thinking, uh, that you will not be able to remain within an organization. 
you will certainly not be able to remain in an organization as a complete organization person. You may be able to hold on to it with a certain kind of lightness of touch, what I call provisionality. I mean, I'm very intrigued by the way, for instance, a lot of secular movements have become evangelical in their atheism. They've almost become like fundamentalist Christians. Um, I've debated in certain forums uh, with people like that. And that, that, that's quite intriguing. I, mean, I think it was... Um, um, uh, uh, Adam Phillips, who said that uh, uh, expressions of over-certainty are almost certainly a fear of inner doubt. If you're that certain, you're not certain. Um, and so I think this is intrinsic to human nature. One of the chapters in the book it talks about the problem that is the human. We are a complicated animal, semi-intelligent, semi-rational, capable of these extraordinary passions and, and, and delusions. Uh, watch, watch, watch crowds who are capable of, of this enormous crowd identity. And we take ourselves with us, this flawed creature, we take that with us into all the promised lands we create for ourselves, whether it's a political, a, a form of political perfection, the Soviet Union, um, any any totalitarian form of politics. Once you get this perfect form on earth, all our problems will go away. They won't because we are in it and we bring our problems with it. We are the virus that infects every human institution and it happens to political and religious institutions. But it, it's difficult in institutional religion in particular, because you're selling a product. Um, and I I have sympathy for, for the salespeople, the clergy, because they want it to continue. Um, and so they have to preach this kind of certainty that I don't think we can possess in life. So I, it's tough. I, I, I feel sorry for them in a way, because they're wanting to keep an institution going. And if they say, well, actually, it may not be absolutely buttoned bright on the truth, we may have got certain things wrong. And if you read religious history, we certainly get things wrong. Um, you think of all the things we repudiated. We got slavery wrong. Um, uh, we got um, the oppression of women wrong. This, I mean, we've only, we've only lifted that repression in my lifetime. We've only ordained women in the, the dear old uh, tolerant Anglican Church five minutes ago. So um, our own history shows us how fallible these institutions are. So again, I'm caught in this need to be compassionate towards the people who are now running the institution. I'm not. To some extent, I can relax. I'm on the edge of it. Um, but I can see they're trying to keep the ship afloat. They're trying to uh, sell their product. And yet... It's not a product that's absolutely fundamentally 100% true. Um, so that puts you in a very, very difficult position. But, but if you can achieve a certain kind of graceful ambiguity about things and a, an ability to say, well, this is how I see things at the moment, but I've been wrong in the past and I want to hold it lightly enough so that when I become convinced it's wrong, I can drop it. Um, and that's quite a difficult psychological feat. So have compassion for institutions, but don't give your soul to any of them. Well, it's interesting as well to think about the fact that what human beings often need is that flexibility. Like what the, when people have what you would describe as spiritual needs or um, emotional needs, what is required is that flexibility. That's what the pastoral side and the spiritual side of things. So it's sort of how it's so funny that 
the idea that it would never fully provide what's necessary without that. And yet there's also enormous security in thinking you have finally got the truth. Oh, yes, that's true. Yeah, and, that's true. And that can, I mean, I'm interested, for instance, in the way very often um, guys on death row and, and those horrible American prisons can get religion usually a fundamentalist religion, and it changes them. Um, there's a program about one of them at the moment. Um, and, and, and so, again, you have to be tolerant of that. It, it may take one extreme illusion to um, erase a more dangerous extreme illusion, and I'd rather have that. I'd rather have you believing in a pink teapot in the sky um, if it makes you kinder and gives you a kind of security. Isn't this terrible, though, and isn't it wonderful? There's nothing absolutely fixed you can say about anything. <laughs> See, that I, I find that tremendously comforting. It's an interesting argument I've had with lots of people, which is, you know, I, I, didn't, I had a kind of anti-Damascene moment where I was walking down the path, and then I was uncertain whether I saw anything at all. And ever since that moment, when I saw that blinding flash or nothing, or maybe it was a twig, ever since then, I have lived here. And, and that is... I think... I wonder... Probably... Sorry, Jack. I think you're totally wrong. I can tell you some things with utter certainty. I hate cleaning chopping boards, and there's not a soul on this earth who enjoys it or who finds it simple or easy. They're never good. No matter what they're made out of, they go. It's fine. That's my entire religious platform. <laughs> well, I think you'll get a new chopping board. I, no, think, you're, I think it's about the board. You should look at the chopping board in your own eye, my friend. I'm 38 years old. I've had a lifetime of different <laughs> chopping boards. I've never found a good one. I've never found one easy to clean. I hate sieves. Cleaning metal <gasps> sieves. Oh, you get down to the sieve. That is an absolute <laughs> torment. Anyway, I'm being silly. It's fascinating watching um, this raging religion about domestic appliances. Um, <laughs> in danger of killing each other over um, the omnipotent chopping board or the infallible sieve. Yeah. Really? We've already fucking <laughs> But it's, it's a very, it's, to, to me, it's an, an intriguing thing, which is how do we lure people? Because at the moment, the anger, I watched a show the other day, a film called um, They Brainwashed My Dad. I think that's the title. Or it's, it's, it's How They Brainwashed My Dad. And it's about a woman who basically saw her dad, who was a kind of, what do we call it, a non-active Democrat in the US, but he was a Democrat. And over time, he's, he started, he used to share a, a car ride and then he just started driving to work on his own and he started listening to Rush Limbaugh and then he started watching Fox News and he became addicted to this anger and he went and his children could no longer talk to him his wife would try and persuade him away for this he would he would spend the whole they're trying to ban christmas uh oh they're trying to close down all the hooters these fe you know it's not using words like feminazis and it's and especially when you see at the moment i mean the footage of seeing the aggression in texas and in florida when all they're saying is wear a mask when you go into a shop and they're saying you are god has taught us how to breathe and you're stealing our breath and you're going well you're using the mask wrongly then you don't stick it right you know there's but that there is an addiction isn't there to and i don't know where that comes from is that because happiness is so hard that you can find an addiction instead to anger and the dopamine hit of anger will replace the elusive nature of happiness i think it's probably partly that but i think there is something infinitely hypnotizable about the human brain 
especially if you let your guard down on on stuff like that. I mean, watch what happens to a crowd. Um, one of my favorite theologians, a man called Reinald Niebuhr, who was Obama's favorite theologian as well, talked about moral man and immoral society. And by that he meant that the human individual is often capable of moral heroism and making moral choices. But once you get in the mob, once you get in the group, a group mind takes over um, that, that, that can rush to crucify, rush to burn, rush to tear things down. Um, and it can happen with ideas as, as, as well as with the kind of the momentum of destruction, which is why I think we need to be very careful um, and, and understand how our humanity works. I mean, I've been in crowds. I remember once uh, when Gateskill was leader of the Labour Party, uh, way back in, in the, the late 50s, early 60s, I was an anti-bomb guy, um, anti-nuclear um, weapons. He came to address a May Day rally in Queen's Park in Glasgow. I was a member of a radical CND group, and we wouldn't let him speak. Um, we, we managed to get into the enclosure, and we charged round and round, shouting, ban the bomb. And it was, it, it, I mean, it was a delicious but frightening experience. I was out of my skull with anger at him. Um, and I remember him shouting, go to Red Square and make your protest. And it was a perfectly valid thing to say. I'm still uh, not in favor of nuclear weapons, but it, but it showed me that even in the name of a good cause, you can become hypnotized into a mob. Um, and I think that that's why we have to be very careful of this fragile humanity that we have. Uh, look back at our record. I mean, look back at the, the, the history of the 20th century. The, the billions of, that we've killed in wars, the two world with 35 million in World War One. I, I don't know how many million in World War Two. how many in the Iraq war. We've been constantly at war um, and we never forgive each other the slights that might stop. Um, these great aggressions. We are a very strange, dangerous animal indeed, uh, which is why it needs a lot of self-discipline, self-understanding and scepticism to keep us aware from doing the kind of stuff that we're seeing at the moment, particularly in the States. But it's been going on in Britain as well. Um, the, the, the two Brexit and, and anti-Brexit shouting at each other, no one able to listen to each other. But how do you feel when when you see that ordinary people are kind of up against injustice that comes from governments, how do you feel when you can see that people's power is being taken from them and that, you know, there's so much corruption in in government and, and that, you know, that people are very, very easily manipulated? You know, I'm thinking about lots of lies on social media in the last election, things like that. Like, how do you then, because I think there is still something to be said for people power, even when it does... You know, even even when it does descend into some kind of a riot or something which is potentially quite dangerous, I still think it's it's of import. And so, how do you kind of what's your view on that? What 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 do you feel about that? That, that that's probably the biggest question we face. I mean, power has always corrupted us. The powerful have always. Uh, run the world according to their own needs and 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 gluttonous desires. Um, the question is, okay, how do we change the system? Um, and we organise against it. We think through it. Um, but I'm afraid I don't think there is a perfect way of doing it. Because that just turns into yet another kind of idolatrous bully. I think that 
I believe in incremental change. I believe in naming the need and working uh, incrementally against it. I think we can constantly improve the human condition. I think we can never make it perfect. And I think the danger is that you might get, because of your anger against uh, injustice, you might get seduced into a messianic idea that the way to get rid of it is to follow this particular ideology. Um, Some ideologies provoke more beneficial change than others, but none does it perfectly. And I think that what you need is a kind of balanced, um, ameliorative approach. Um, and that, on the whole, is what characterized um, the 20th century. Um, whenever there's a big human crisis, you correct it as you can. Out of World War II came the welfare state. That underrated little thinker, um, Clement Attlee, uh, gave us the National Health Service that we now worship. And, and I think that this current COVID crisis is, gives us another one of these crisis opportunities that we can use to create change that will again be defeated in another 50 years' time. That's the way it goes. It's never, ever absolute. There's no perfect way of establishing it forever because we are imperfect. Um, uh, in biblical language, we're sinners and everything we touch gets corrupted. But you can make these big shifts. And one of the big shifts I hope we make out of COVID is the recognition that it's the people at the bottom that have kept the rest of us going. I mean, it's but it's always been that way. Um, and one of the great things I love about Jesus is that the people who heard him gladly were the poor, were the people at the bottom. He got the way the political structure just sat on them. And he wanted us to go to the bottom and look up, whereas a lot of us end up going to the top and looking down and finding excuses for, the, for, for our own privilege. It's slow, it's difficult, it never actually achieves an overnight reform, but my God, it's the way that has created uh, the big changes. Um, and I hope that out of this COVID thing, some of that will come. Uh, stay angry, get organized, but always be skeptical that maybe um, you too will get corrupted. But I do think the stories are, that's one of the things, because this book is about stories, and, and what we've just been talking about there is some people are attracted to a certain kind of story which gives them a sense of superiority. And some people are interested in, because I think you mentioned, I can't remember if it's in the book or when we've spoken once actually, where talking about be careful if you get to a belief where you're having to spend your whole time justifying it and mm -hmm. never being able to argue with yourself or work out why you believe it. And I think that's another thing that we see with um, when we talk about dogmatists, like religious dogmatists sometimes, where I think you'd think they'd be happy because they've got these certainties, but they're incredibly unhappy because yeah. they're anyone who suggests that it might not be as certain as that, the fury comes out. So that's one of the things that I find most interesting is people who are dogmatists also seem to be tremendously unhappy as well. And very angry. Uh, anger is one of the tests. I mean, it comes off some people like esteem. I mean, the 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 the, the kind of angry male, for instance, um, who, who's spluttering with rage because he doesn't like, you know, a political correctness gone mad. That kind of stuff. Um, it it it's a kind of a, an inability maybe to adapt to incremental changes that are happening. But this goes on all the time. I mean, it's, it's, it's the way humans do being human. Um, and again, I come back to my rather pathetic question. Can I uh, consider the possibility that you might be wrong about this, that you might change your mind about this? And what effect is it having not only on your blood pressure, uh, but on your relationship with others? 
uh, and if you're getting too angry all the time, um, query it, ask questions about it, think your way through. Um, and to me, the test is always compassion and kindness. Um, it, it, it's, it's a kind of pathetic test in a way, um, but any political position that inhibits your capacity for being kind, even towards a, a, a political opponent, there's something kind of wrong with it. And also, always remember that the human animal is a diseased creature, psychologically diseased, and one, one, of, one of the most common diseased tropes is a belief. Uh, I, I quote in the book Dear Old Tony Blair on the masochism strategy. Remember that when he went round justifying the Iraq war, our, our involvement in the Iraq war? And he kept saying, but I believe this. Um, and I say in the book, a belief gives you um, information about a person's psychology. It doesn't give you any other information at all, uh, because what he believed, the weapons of mass destruction were not there. Um, you know, a belief is something you should be questioning because it's not necessarily based on absolute facts. And we're told um, that they're constantly being in dispute at the moment, that the whole kind of um, uh, Internet media stuff challenges provable facts. Um, uh, we're capable of believing the most extraordinary things. And some people just some people don't believe in the Holocaust. Some people don't believe in the moon landing. We saw it happening, that one. So. Be Producer Trent jumping in here just to let you know that at this point in the conversation, uh, Richard's internet cut out. So there was a few minutes of faffing about and then we were back in action. The secret is learning how to read um, seriously, but not literally. I mean, the, the, the tragedy of the Bible is that it's a treasure trove of wonderful wisdom, compassion, some funny stories, some horror stories. Um, but you lose its usefulness today if you turn it into not, 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 not myth, not poetry, not the human imagination struggling with big questions of meaning, but into an infallible text dictated by God. We ha I'm reading the Poisonwood Bible at the moment by Barbara Kingsolver, which is about um, a fundamentalist missionary in Congo um, uh, towards the end of, of the horror of Belgian rule. Uh, and, it, uh, and it's about how he, he can't get in touch at all with African culture because he knows the truth and he's come there to impose it on them. Um, and he can't even share the beauty of it with them because he's using it almost as a kind of salvation instrument. So one of the, one of the pleas I make in the book is we're all telling each other stories but learn to read them, listen to them. Um, and most of the stuff that these old stories are what we call myth. And a myth is not something that's untrue. It's something that's true all the time. The Adam and Eve story, if you take it literally, you, you, you lose it as a, as a useful story. But if you read it as a great myth that's true all the time, it's about human discontent. It's about lust. It's about disappointment, um, and and you got it resonates every day. Uh, so one of one of the things I'm trying to do in the book is to help people how to read ancient texts. Um, and the, the the great thing about a, a a good story is that it's never out of date. Um, there are things that writers write that others read from the story that they didn't know was in there. 
they take on a life of their own. Um, some stories are terrible, you, but you, you can interpret them as well. So that's why I called the book Stories We Tell Ourselves. We told ourselves a story about a little world with a lid on top of it, with stars studied in a beautiful story. Um, uh, it turned out to be uh, poetically true, but cosmologically not true. But you can still read that in a kind of a way uh, with a certain kind of beauty in it. Now that we know we've been around, the universe has been around for five billion years, our little blue planet is what, five, uh, the universe 14 and a half billion years, our wee planet four billion years, us, the human animal, just a few thousand years. Um, but there's a kind of a beauty in that. If you misread the old stories and you discover new scientific truth, you can lose the stories because you misread them. My plea is don't don't lose your stories, read your stories and read them intelligently. Mm. Yeah, I think that's a, uh, yeah, it, it does seem it's such a loss. I, I sometimes think that's another problem with when you get to a point of dogmatic thinking, it removes so many of the different pathways that you're allowed to walk down. That suddenly, you know, whether it is the whether it's romantic, whether it's love, whether it's that pathway or whether it's just about the way that you can perceive the stars or think about our place in the universe. If you narrow it down too much, you go, we well, are no longer allowed. You can't go this. this. I've, I've found the route and it takes away a huge amount of the landscape and a huge number of visions that you can have. And it can make you intensely cruel. I mean, think of the, the way children in certain totalitarian regimes um, report on their parents. Uh, it, it can take away family love because they've been consumed by a big idolatrous idea that makes them report on their parents. I mean, there are horrible examples of that in, in all totalitarian regimes. Um, so suspect totalitarian stories of any sort, whether they're political or religious, learn to read learn to discriminate, learn to abandon. <clears throat> that, I mean, think of the, the stories we told about people with darker skins than ours. Uh, you can read that into the Bible. I mean, the, the Poisonwood Bible I'm reading at the moment, um, the children of Ham um, were the darker skinned people and therefore they were enslavable. That's a story that we misread. Um, uh, your stories can be terrifyingly dangerous um, and if, if you if you tell uh, uh, too passionate a revolutionary story it can turn you into a destroyer uh, which is why I find myself in my old age um, uh, a kind of moral incrementalist radical about the, the flaws in human nature um, but wary of miracle cures for our own disease because we bring ourselves into the sanitarium and we reinfect it. COVID is, uh, in many ways, is the perfect metaphor for the human condition. Be wary of it. You can you can palliate it, but you can never 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 get rid of yourself. You bring yourself into a marriage, into a monastery, into a political party, into a university classroom, and that changes the vibe. Be wary, but for God's sake, be kind. Mm. Pathetic, isn't it? No, but that's the interesting oh. thing, isn't it? But also, I think within the idea that one must try to cultivate a humane perspective is a, is its own kind of certainty in a really lovely way. 
you know the idea that you can't always rely on interpersonal kindness that you can always rely on cultivating love is like that's in, enough <laughs> it's enough to get you through i think but it is again going back to your stories this is the problem isn't it if you have a democracy but you end up allowing a very small number of people to control <laughs> the stories that we get on a daily basis then it's very hard to have a because to, to me that's not a, in in many ways that's not a democracy if you go these are the group of people who don't live in this country who don't pay tax in this country and who are controlling the opinions of those people in in, in this then your democracy is built on something which is very very tenuous barely a group it's a five-a-side football team yeah but isn't social media among young people beginning to balance that a bit I may be wrong about that. I mean, I don't do it myself. I'm too much of a klutz. I press the wrong buttons. Um, but it seems to me that um, nothing is ever going to be perfect, but things can improve. And it may be that um, young people voting, taking part in the process, realizing that unless they invest in these crumbly old institutions, they won't incrementally improve them. And that, I think, is the game. Mm. There is no absolutely perfect promised land, but things can improve a bit as we trundle the covered wagons to the perfect end. <laughs> um, Richard, thank you very much. Uh, the new book is out. Is it out now or is it next month? Is it July? I'm trying to remember when it's... July the 14th. July the 14th. Uh, it's a, a beautiful i will warn you don't buy the book until the libraries are open otherwise it will be very costly because like everything that richard writes you constantly go oh, i haven't read that book that he's just quoted and that sounds fantastic and i have all oh, this poetry is brilliant i didn't know how good that poet was so you will find yourself the network i mean that's one of the things that i love about your writing is there's always one day i'm going to just build a huge spider's web from each book of where each you know every chapter leads you to so many other people that's one of the things that i find beautiful i don't know how you that bit where books are to me they're they're a, a fossil of the mind so when mm -hmm. i look along my bookshelves i was looking the other day and i thought there's a lot of books by people who are no longer with us people uh you know whether it's carl sagan or whether it's 19th century writers or william james to went for but they're alive that bit that so much of the activity of their mind yeah. is yeah. still there and writing is a conversation with other writers. I mean, that's the thing I love about it, that um, I, I'm often accused of quoting too much, but I don't mind that because I'm engaged in this great group conversation. And you know that because you're a writer too. And Joseph, when is your first book coming out? Well, I'm writing at the moment. I am. I'm writing some stories. But I, I wanted to say there's, that, there's a beautiful quote in your book, which I'm going to mangle because I don't have it in front <laughs> of me, about how writing is leaving a mark in your brief period while you're here. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yes, that's right. I was here. It's a bit that I was brought up during the war and American soldiers over here scribbled a wee graffiti till Roy was here. And you would see them in lavatories on trees and things. And the uh, and writers and artists leave a mark on history. Yeah. We were here. And it is on a tree as well, isn't it? You really have carved <laughs> it into a tree. Um, thank you so much. Richard's book, as he said, out on the 14th of July from Canongate. Uh, Josie, what are you up to now? Are you well, getting on your bicycle or not? I wish my bike was stolen. And then a really wonderful friend has offered me a new one, but the new one is too small for me and needs a service. So I'm not yet on it. Um, so I'm going to walk 
the hour, just a sweet hour, just a very easy hour. Um, but I have to go and buy a bike lock because the new bike doesn't have a lock. So at the moment it's in the living room, which is difficult with a two-year-old. So lots of administration. <laughs> Your existence in Italian neorealism post-war films has been very problematic. <laughs> But isn't that one of the wonderful stories of our time, the return of the bicycle? Yeah. <laughs> uh, Richard, and you, you're still writing as well. You've got another book coming out then at I, some point. Well, I mean, uh, it may not come to anything. I, I discovered I, I, I get antsy if I'm not doing something. So I've started a bit of an anthology um, that may or not be publishable, but it keeps me going. It keeps me writing, which kind of keeps me semi-sane. Hmm. Brilliant. Well, it's, it's been very heartening to hear that you'd thought, okay, this will be my retirement book, and actually that the urge doesn't ever go. I think it's really important. Yeah, I'll, I'll be scribbling in the tomb. <laughs> yeah, I, I did not. But what are we going to put on his gravestone? Don't worry, he'll write it himself while he's there. Um, it's uh, yeah, it's fa fabulous book, and I recommend, as I said at the beginning as well, to people to go and look at the other. That were I think pretty much all of it's been brought out again in Canongate, hasn't it? With some some of them, slightly, I think they did a new line a while ago between the monster and the saint and godless morality, and ah, uh, oh, I'm, I'm looking into the distance, isn't the, and leaving Alex. Alexandria was my memoir um, that even won a prize and that does have it has the full thing we were mentioning the Lambeth conference it has uh all of the uh the the, the details of, of of that particular year as well thanks very much everyone for listening thank you everyone who's able to support us for our patreon uh Josie will be doing as usual her live shows on the cosmic shambles show uh channel uh, on so, well, it won't be. We don't know when this. Oh, it's every Sunday though, isn't it? Now you've, you've at yeah. the moment it is, and it shall be for probably the next couple of months. So Josie every Sunday, and we're doing our Sunday science Q and A's and all those other things. Thanks very much, everyone. Bye bye. Bye bye. Thank you very much for listening. Stories we tell ourselves. The new book from Richard Holloway is out now. Go and get yourself a copy of that. Patreon.com slash bookshambles is where you can go to support us and get yourself extended episodes and bonus episodes and live streams and all sorts of other stuff while feeling good about supporting the show. Back with a new episode next week. Until then, take care, look after yourselves and have a great week. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins Book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions.